This is Sound Lives, a new Music Box podcast sharing insights and stories from people who dedicate their lives to new music. Brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. You're listening to Elegy from Symphony No. 2 by Judith Lang Zaymont, performed by the Czech Radio Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Doris Lang Kozlov, and released by Arabesque Recordings. Welcome to Sound Lines. I'm Frank J. Oteri, and today I'm speaking with Judith Lang Zaymont about her music for piano, chamber ensembles, orchestra, and Jewish religious services. We'll also talk to her about her appearance on The Lawrence Welk Show and her pioneering editorial work on behalf of female composers. A notated composition is a fixed thing of somebody's ideas and it can get very specific and very particular. Yet despite that, you hand it off to someone else and even you hand it off to the same people, do it more than one time, it's never gonna be exactly the same twice. So many pieces of contemporary music which maybe get done once and if they're lucky, they get recorded and you have that recording and it's a document of it. In the case of your music, there are multiple recordings of several pieces. And it's just been a joy hearing those different interpretations and different people bringing stuff to that music because after all, that's what turns this stuff into repertoire. You bet. And you've hit on something that's really key. Remember, I started age five on the piano and I have a background as a performer. I perform even into the current day with our local chamber orchestra. So I have a super appreciation of the performer's entry point into a fixed item. Very often what you get on a first rendition is the skeleton of the piece. People haven't pulled back to view it, performers, to really grab it in three dimensions to understand its sinews and flexing and how its overall progress is from the beginning to the end so they can put certain sections in their pacing in their dynamics in their expression into proportion for the piece as a whole so what i do bring to music is a performer's perspective and i think that's quite important it makes my music not terrifically arcane, although some people have responded as if their first entry to it is a bit opaque. That's okay with me. When my first symphony was done by the Philadelphia Orchestra, they had a question and answer period afterwards for audience members to stand up and ask me questions. One young boy stood up, very self-possessed, and he said, he didn't always understand the music, but it made him feel things he'd never felt before. And I thought to myself, what a wonderful response. A work of art shouldn't give itself up on the first hearing anyway. That's what I bring to it. And I think that's embedded in my music. Maybe why a goodly number of performers have responded to it so that it lives in performance, not just in a recorded document. That moment of self-awareness, which for you came quite early on, even though you were getting gigs as a performer, you were even played on the Lawrence Welk show. I, I don't think you were quite five. I think you were 11 at that well, point. No, I was 11. The great thing about that was they took my whole family. We They flew us out to California from New York on those old prop planes. This is 1956. My mother insisted that we were going to meet Walt Disney. They had just opened Disneyland. So we went for an afternoon to Disney. We're sitting there on a bench by the sidewalk and this man comes along with a mustache and he's looking at things, he's looking into the wastebaskets and he stopped and asked my mother how we liked the experience. And it was Walt Disney. I have a photograph with him. And my mother was right. We met Walt Disney. That was much more memorable to me than playing Malaganya on the Lawrence Welk Show and having to learn that duet with Pete Fountain, the clarinetist, which I had to practice in the hotel room on the side of a bed. We didn't have a piano. Even though you were doing things like that, you already knew that 
you wanted to compose music more than you wanted to play music? This is easy. I've never liked being forward in public. Even this is difficult for me, just talking to you. Um, I prefer to have music talk to me and then see where I respond to that. But to get to your point, it was really clear. I hated practicing. From the time I was eight, I was required to practice three hours a day. That's a lot for a young child. Some of it was great because the music was good, but some of it was boring, like those Hannon exercises. So after I played those things over, you know, 19 times, 20 times, if I could get finished with my requirements for the day early, I gave myself a treat, which was sight reading. I'd sight read through the Mozart sonatas or the Chopin mazurkas or waltzes, things, you know, that are easy, that fall right into the fingers. One day, the piece I sight read was the Chopin Berceuse, which is in D-flat major on a ground. The left hand stays the same all the way through, and the right hand spins these wonderful variants on a very simple musical curve. It was like a light bulb went on over my head. It said to me, aha, Chopin does not like to play the same thing the same way every time. And it was like a door opened to me that I was free also to mess around with the notes. If Chopin could do it, I could do it. And that was it. I love that story. But the other thing that I love about that story is Chopin is an early role model. Here's an example of a composer whose music has been interpreted by so many different people who find their own identities in the notes he put on the page. It takes on this other life in performance. And you know, you compare like Michelangeli's recordings of Chopin to Horowitz's recordings. They're the same piece, but they're very different. Oh, and Rubinstein. Yes. That's music that connects with the performer on the performer's wavelength. I don't know how else to say it. And I always hoped that even though my own original music would be a document of some kind, that it would also have enough in it, even though it's pretty darn specific on the page, so that performers would feel welcomed into this world and want to make it their own. The wonderful validity is you hear over and over again from certain performers who are encountering your music for the first time to play it, not hear it, to play it. And they write to me, they say, you know, it really fits the fingers. One of the things I did this last year during pandemic, dark, dark, dark times, I wrote a piece for piano. It's like a sort of a nocturne, but not really, called When Darkness Falls. It's a sort of impression on me of what it meant to be an absolute lockdown last March. I wrote the piece in March of 2020. Bradford Gowan asked for a copy of it, and he wrote back to me. He said, He looked at it and then he played it. And he said the thing made sense to him in the playing. And I think that's a wonderful thing also. It can look all spread apart and different on the page. You wanna choose 16th notes as your general unit of how you're gonna progress. You wanna use quarters and whole notes, whatever you wanna use. The piece will look different. There's a reason that Vocal music and educational music look the way they look on the page. We have a whole thing about notation equivalence inherited from European usages, but modified in this country. And so there are certain things that people seem ready to contend with without any kind of adjustment. I think a long time about how the music is going to be notated. The first time I realized that slow music was notated tiny was when I learned the Pathétique Sonata at age 10. And I looked at the middle of that, which has some 30 seconds in it, occasionally sprinkled, and a lot of 16ths. And I looked at that beautiful melody, and then I looked at the last movement, which is the rondo, and it's notated in eighth notes, and it's like in cup time, essentially. And there was uh, you know, just realization of these conventions. 
And if our own personal music adopts a different convention, somehow the preparation, prefatory note should say that to the player. Just enter the performer's viewpoint. That's it. So you can connect. It's great for there to be different interpretations, but there are certain core things that you want there. And as you say, your music is quite specific. But one of the things that it's very difficult to be specific with in music, since music is so abstract, are the feelings that are undergirding these various pieces. And I find it particularly interesting that most of the time you will give a piece a really evocative title as opposed to, say, string quartet number one. My first string quartet is called string quartet, the figure. Yes, but there, you have the figure. You have something else added. You're giving people a little something extra. You know, and I'm thinking now of your first wind quintet, When Angels Speak. You know, that title is such a magical title because it says a lot, but it also doesn't say a lot because we have no idea what it means for angels to speak. You got it. So whatever this music is, could be the voices of angels. Many of my titles come way after the fact, way after. That piece was quite difficult to write. I had just broken my leg and I wrote most of it lying on my back on the couch. What was difficult about it was I felt that it was fragmentary. And so I tried to make a virtue out of the fact that it was non-rational in some ways in the way it progressed, figuring we have to deal with something outside of our normal rational sphere. Ah, angels. So when angels speak, they might sound like this. It's interesting that the titles come later because I wouldn't have always thought that. And I want to go back to a very early piece. In fact, the first piece of yours I ever heard which was the calendar set. I got the the Leonardo LP, you know, decades ago and it- That's Gary Steigerwald's performance. Mm -hmm. It's quite good. I know. They're all good, the recordings. It's amazing. And they're all different. That's the first I had ever heard. And what struck me about that piece is how it's 12 different movements, each for a different month of the year. And you go through, there are loads of composers have done pieces based on the seasons. You know, everybody knows the Vivaldi, but there are all these others. There's like Haydn, there's even like Joachim Raff wrote four symphonies, one for each season. The only other piece besides your piece that goes month by month is Das Jahr by Fanny Mendelssohn. And Tchaikovsky did it too. I played June when I was growing up. It was in one of my anthologies by Tchaikovsky. I wrote a calendar set because I wanted to to have a piece for myself to play in public, a piece whose music made sense to me from whoever I was then. I've been always most responsive, not to personal dynamics, but responding to atmosphere, time of year, conditions of light, and all the fascinations of the natural world. I'm a big space buff. I always want horizons that don't fence you in. I want the horizons, the openness, the idea of quest, finding something that you haven't yet found that's out there. So I remain in that direction. And I figured, why not write a piece for myself? The first month I wrote, I think was May. And then I wrote August. Those two were written in France, and then I came back to the United States and started my university teaching at a four-year school. Previously, I'd been at a two-year school at Queens College, and I had time, so I figured I'd take the months, months by month. The last one I wrote was January, and I only wrote that because I, I was obliged to play the piece in public, and I didn't have the month, so I had to do that at the end. And all of the subtitles. I did a research project in the local library to find those quotes. Each piece was written in that month of the year in a temperate climate zone. Uh, Conditions of light and whether it was nice enough to go outside or you needed to hunker down and stay in. Now, it's interesting that the poetry quotes came later. They're certainly there in the score. 
So are they there for the players? Yes. To be inspired by? Yes. Um, and it helps to clue the performer in too. The warmth and ripple of June, the drumbeat of January, the figuration and windiness of September, the starkness of November. That's my birth month. So I could be private about that. And indeed it is. And then I threw two quote limits in because when you get to 4th of July month and when you get to holiday month, December, you have all this music in the air that's part of different kinds of celebration. And so I did a parade for holiday tunes for July and then Christmas, there's that little fugato on God rest ye, merry gentlemen. It's interesting to hear you talk about space and exploration because the other piano cycle of yours that I absolutely treasure is Jupiter's Moons, which is certainly otherworldly, but whereas most people playing your calendar set will have an idea in their head about different months and be able to bring different moods to it, not a whole lot of people know about Callisto and Ganymede and <laughs> satellites. Well, the great thing about Jupiter's moons is that they're named after mythological beings. So you could go straight to the mythology and find out about the fleetness of Ganymede, or Callisto is the Ursa Major, the great she-bear, and Europa. Well, you have an idea about what Europe is. Leda, the swan seduced by Zeus, lent itself to a nocturne, and the prelude, which is the moon swim in orbit. I left out Io. Io's a, a movement that really interests me. It is written in layers, so that one hand does not necessarily agree with the other hand. You have to really control your dynamics, and each of your hands is doing more than one function at all times. That was a musically interesting puzzle to solve. All of my pieces solve puzzles. I don't want to repeat myself. I thought I'd written one string quartet, that was enough. One wind quintet, that was enough. One brass quintet, yes, that is enough. I've never gone back there. One piano trio, that was enough. No, people requested additional examples. And one thing that we might chat about, Frank, because I know you have experience with this in deep ways, is the difference between writing a piece that you feel you have to write, you must write this music, and then writing a piece that comes as a commission. I have very particular ideas or thoughts about commissions. They open doors, but they always come as a result of knowing past music by the person. And if you are not a uh, one groove individual artistically. If you have many parts to yourself, then you could open a door you've never opened before in a new piece, and it should be able to be accepted by the commissioner. It's nice to have limits, right? We wanna know if the piece is going to be a first half closer or a second half opener. We want to know what the forces are, approximately what length they're looking for but then they should stop right there. This is a conversation I've not only had with so many other composers, but also with painters who get represented by a gallery and then the painter's doing new work that's totally different. And then the gallery person's like, but this isn't like your previous work. Well, great, it isn't. You already have that work. Now it's time to do the new work. And it's the same exact frustration. Although I have to say, I am so happy that you decided to write a second piano trio because that's just about one of my favorite pieces of yours. Zones? Zones? That is such an amazing, amazing piece. I like the first trio too, but there, there's something about zones that's just structurally. And here's, and, and you know, you say you, you come up with the titles often after because- Oh no, these, these were ahead of time. They were, were yeah, because I feel it. I mean, I feel this whole idea of, you know, different meteorological, different weather things. And, and it's a very kind of unique way of putting together a multi-movement piece from turbulence to ecstatic resolution somehow. It's like, I can't think of another piece that does that in that well, way. Well, there's another thing about Zones. That was a commission, but I really wanted to write another piano trio. 
the recording of my first piano trio that exists is not the whole piece. It's only the second and third movements. I always wanted to get back and tinker with the first movement and never had the opportunity. There's some stuff in that first movement that warrants um, revisit. I sign my pieces. I am not Rachmaninoff, so I don't have a rhythm. I'm not David Del Tredici, so I don't have 13 strokes. What I have is the sound Z. If you notice how many of my pieces are signed as plurals, so the ending sound is Z. And I sign zones both in the front and in the back, zones. When I moved from Judith Lang to Judith Lang Zaman, when I got married 53 years ago, something happened. I thought a little bit about what it meant to change that alphabetic positioning. So I've signed my pieces. You're in a line for something like whether it's voting or, or attending a conference and it's like A to L and then M to Z and the, the Z is all the way at the end. To go from L to Z is quite a jump. Yep. But I signed it that way because I think of it as a truly representative piece of mine. You alluded before when we were talking about painters and commissions to the fact that people only know who we have been. They don't know who we will be in our artistic expression. We suffer a little bit, if you've been at this for a while, from being branded thus or such. And artists are not their brand. If you relax into that groove, beware you will be forever Peter Max. You will be one model. So I'm very, very careful to be sure that all aspects of personality can come forward in the music. I also am of the belief that listeners really respond to and hold on to over time their response to what they've heard. It's not even the thing itself. It's how it made them respond, how they felt, were they puzzled, which is a beckon to come back into the piece and hear it again. But also, if they really felt like they loved it, will they love it the next time is the question. I have tried not to be branded. I take the long view being of age, I've watched a seasonal change in the music in this country. Sam Adler speaks about this in the foreword to one of the later editions of his orchestration book. He speaks to the fact that what he thought was going to be American music in the first part of the 21st century is not what it is now. It has taken a turn. It keeps absorbing all kinds of influences, which is, means it's a living thing, but it is also not the analyzed, written from head authority out to listener, take me in. It is more communal and it has turned back forward to tonality in really, really big ways. One can only muse about this and be true to your own artistic personality, of course, but also Think about the environment in which your new piece is going to come forward. I found some of my most liberating pieces to be pieces that were not commissions, but pieces written because I needed to scratch a bump of curiosity. Ideally, you know, the sweet spot is you convince somebody to commission that. <laughs> <laughs> right? If I only knew how. <laughs> The problem always with a piece that isn't commissioned is it's an orphan, right? So you have to get someone to adopt it. Part of the whole process of having someone commissioning a piece is that that person, that conductor, that ensemble, that singer, that pianist, whoever it might be, feels a partial sense of birthright, ownership, midwifery, whatever it may be to that piece. And if the piece doesn't have that, I found in my own experience, it's very hard to convince somebody that it could be theirs. The magic trick of how you make repertoire with the multiple interpretations is that you convince the players that that music can speak through them and it's theirs somehow. There are 
some conductors I wish who would look in my direction. My second and my sixth symphonies were not commissioned pieces. One movement of it has been done a lot, the elegy, but the outer movements were only done in Kharkov, not in this country. And of my fourth symphony, only one movement was played in this country is the Janicek Philharmonic recorded it. And my sixth symphony, which is Symphony of Seasons, by the way, going uh -huh. back to that, that's what you would call an orphan. I've been jotting down ideas for the seventh. I wrote a piece because I was mystified by the music of two composers, mystified and bored. And I wanted to find out why I was mystified and bored. So I studied the music of these two composers and used their techniques to write my 19-minute tone poem, Stillness, for orchestra. And lo and behold, a year after it was written, some conductor out here in the Southwest took it up and played the piece in public. Then it has been recorded by a European orchestra. You never know when somebody will chime to something that they stumble over. Last year, I also wrote another piece, not commissioned, that was to do something that I felt was lacking in some of my other music. I consider, stepping back, I consider my second string quartet, A Strange Magic, terrifically representative of my music. It's frontal, it's direct, it's interruptive, it's bold, but it has tenderness around the edges, but that's me in one vein. Then I wanted to write a piece that didn't do that. I wanted a piece that would be a study in sustained resonance. So I wrote tendrils for the instruments that are liquid and can combine for flute, clarinet, and vibraphone. Turns out that piece is gonna be premiered this month in Florida. You never know, you never know when following your own pathway is something that somebody else will chime to. You never know. That's true. And of course, you know, there are all these stories of composers in the Soviet Union who wrote music for the trunk, as it were. And these pieces were not done. And years later, we've discovered Galina Ustvolskaya's music, which is right. amazing. Right. She's um, an amazing composer. Yeah, incredible music. But it's terrific that those pieces have been rediscovered sad that didn't get the kind of notoriety. Well, it couldn't when a lot of those pieces were written. But you described stillness and wanting to come to terms with two composers. You've got to tell us who they were. They are mystifying to me for different reasons. One of them is Frederick Delius, whose harmonic rhythm, innate harmonic rhythm, is just too slow for me. The rate at which his chords change is just too slow for me. I'm, I'm a fast flapper, I guess. The other composer is Morton Feldman. I need some sort of perceivable rhythmic track to follow. I don't mean something that's a cell, far from it. But there are things about his music that uh, just leave me to the side. And so I wanted to do in places in this piece what these two people did, which was be long and be not far from immediate, let's put it that way. I sat down and did a chart. I do charts of other people's periodicities. I did all the development sections of all the Beethoven sonatas, all the sonata allegro movements. I wanted to clock how long his developments were proportionally in relation to the opening and to the close of the sonata movement. This was before I wrote the piano concerto. And that was instructive. They change over time, certainly. And I did a chart here of the last section of Firebird, because what I wanted were the statement lengths of each fragment. That's what I wanted. And I had to shove that in the middle, something similar to that in the middle of stillness in order for me to be satisfied that this was a piece of my music and not a piece by uh, strictly according to the precepts of those other composers. 
I didn't know that you did that with the Beethoven sonatas because I love going on these listening binges where I'll listen sequentially to something over a long period of time. Like this last month, I finished, believe it or not, listening to all the keyboard concertos of C.P.E. Bach. There are like 60 of them. He's a good composer. Yes, I agree. And I, Wilhelm Friedemann is also excellent. Yeah, fantastic. But this kind of strikes to what you were saying before about getting typecast in a certain way. You know, you listen to these pieces and they're all of a kind and they're really good. I mean, he had a gig working for Frederick the Great. And then when he got to Hamburg, he was able to do slightly other things. But then he stopped writing keyboard concertos. He did other things. It's interesting in light of that, and you know, getting back to what we were talking about earlier with titles, and you know, you're mentioning the Sixth Symphony. The problem with calling a piece Symphony Number no. Six is the only thing it refers to is the fact that you wrote five other ones. Mm-hmm. So it automatically is referencing your past, no matter what you do. <laughs> well, I have only one sonata for piano. I want you My- to write more. I love that sonata. My forehands piece. Now, there's a case where the title really helps the listener and the performer. Snazzy Sonata. That's a right. really fun piece. Right. And I wrote that the year that we lived in France. And I was so homesick for America. And I really wanted to write a piece just for my sister and myself to play in our living room for our father, who was our best listener. He's the one who took every Saturday and drove us into Juilliard prep from Eastern Queens into Juilliard so that we could go for our complete Saturday there, lessons and classes and whatnot. That's such devotion. I wanted to give him back some music he would like. A brilliant engineer and the former water commissioner for the city of New York under three different mayors. Um, But his musical taste, was big band music of the 30s and the 40s. That was it. So I wanted to write a piece of music he would understand. He used to come to all my concerts and applaud like crazy. Then he'd get this funny look on his face, like maybe he didn't understand the music. I wanted to give him some music he'd understand. I wrote a sonata for my sister and myself, and these pieces played around the world. Who knows? Who knows? Well, big band music of the 30s and 40s, there's a lot of great stuff there. I mean, if he was oh, listening to like yes. Arlington and, and Mary Lou Williams and it's like really stunning, large-scale pieces, too. Really amazing yes. orchestration. Yes. Fletcher Henderson. I feel like a lot of that music somehow does seep into your music harmonically. I mean, clearly it's indebted to European classical music. I know in in this recent essay you wrote about being a composer without adjectives, it is clearly the work of an American composer who is immersed in many different stylistic idioms. I think of all all the rags you wrote that are so effective, but also, you know, the jazz harmonies that wind up in places, the pop harmonies even. There's a piano suite of yours that has a movement that's even called pop style, yes. yes. And it clearly has that sound world. And hey, that's wonderful. You know, I love those harmonies. What's wrong with them? I think they're great. Maybe it's because I come from playing an instrument that has a harmonic dimension to it, I guess you'd have to say. I do gravitate to mediums where there's coherence up to down across the entire register. That's what I love about symphonic strings or about string quartet. And it's something that I needed to contend with in the music that I wrote for symphonic wind ensemble or for band. You really have to deal with striated colors and the whole question of differing tone weights for the instruments. My symphony for wind orchestra in three scenes starts with a movement that I call growler because it's fierce. I heard the opening, the first 30 seconds, I heard it in my head in a flash. But when I sat down to write it, I said, aha, this is gonna be played by wind ensembles. They live in the universities. I want everybody's attention up front. So I wanted to load the instruments on almost as soon as I could, but in order of their relative tone weights. So the heaviest brass come in at the end and the whole thing is loaded from the high winds down. There's a percussion bed from the high winds down. You watch the horns and saxes get added in. The lower instruments, then the trumpets are the last ones in. 
So the idea was to deal with this as a presentation of what this first 30 seconds of what wind ensemble offers the composer, but also what we need to be sensitive to. That was an interesting problem to solve. You always want a piece to solve a problem and then go on from there, not to repeat yourself, do something else. Now, once again, with that piece, with the symphony, I noticed with several pieces, we were talking before about the second symphony, the string orchestra symphony, Elegy has a life on its own, which is great because it's so beautiful. It's such a moving, gorgeous piece. But yeah, it's, it's frustrating that there's a recording that has two movements of that symphony, but I still haven't heard the last movement of that piece. And the symphony for wind instruments, which I imagine is the third symphony, there's only one movement that's been recorded. Right, right. And so that's the way it happened. The third symphony has been done both in this country and in England. So it had its life. And I happened to be at a wonderful live performance of the last movement, the Tarantelle. That's really tricky. That wind ensemble really pulled it off. It was excellent. It's life. Things happen. Things don't happen. You move on to the next. My job is to make the music. It's not to flog it, get it out there and flog it in public. But it's great that you constructed these pieces so that parts of them can exist on their own. Oh, yeah. I know reality. <laughs> well, I'm going to be flogging this repertoire because there are a lot of these pieces I want to hear that I haven't heard. And there's an early piece of yours, your first large-scale work, I've only heard six excerpts from because that's all that's available. That's all that's been done. Your sacred service. Believe it or not, that's a bicentennial commission. This piece is, my goodness, 45 40, years old. 45 right? years, yeah. I would love to have the sacred service recorded. It has some good music in it. And it is deeply meaningful to me as a Jew. This is the third reform service. It's a Friday night service, not a Saturday morning service. And people have really responded to some of the movements. There's only the six, there's the excerpts that were recorded by James Maddalena with Jerry Schwartz. I could identify the pieces of mine that I think are representative. And it's important for a composer to know oneself. Ned Roram once wrote that a composer has three arrows in his quiver and he shoots them over and over again. I took that as a challenge. I think we have a lot more to offer than three veins in which we operate. And I sincerely hope that over time, people will come, those people who know my music might decide to nod to that, that I have a little more to offer than just three things that I do and do them over and over again in different combinations. It's hard sometimes to tell a composer's personality. You were talking about CPE Bach's keyboard concerti. He's writing at a time when form is getting pretty codified, not finally, but somewhat. It was somewhat easier, I think, to write at a time when you knew the size of the envelope you were going to fill and it needed to follow a form that was thus and such, balanced or unbalanced forms. My affinity is not for people who use received forms. When I've used a received form, I've always felt limited, like in the first movement of the piano concerto. I always felt limited by that. My piano solo sonata has a opening movement that is in Sonata Allegro, but it has three themes, not two. And mostly, I have been drawn to the music of transitional composers who are inventing form along with innovating new sounds. People like Berlioz or Scriabin or Stravinsky, whose forms are not received forms. And I guess Brahms opened the door to all of us with continuous variation. There's a beckoning finger if there ever was one. And it's in line with what I felt from Chopin in that early encounter with the Berceuse that was, you don't have to do it the same way every time. You don't have to do it anybody else's way. Do it your own way. And if other people understand that, fine. If they like it, fine. If they don't like it, fine. 
if they don't understand it, maybe you can help them to understand it a little bit or not. Leave it as an enigma. I don't know. I do know that audiences respond to program notes. I mean, I think the thing with program notes is it really helps ground people. You know, we might know what lies behind that music, but there's no chord that means I'm hungry now. You know, there's no chord that means table. This is something Ned Roram's talked about, actually, bring up Ned Roram again, that you know, music doesn't mean anything except a reference back to itself. And an audience is not going to hear that in real time, certainly not in a live setting on first listening. Getting back to this whole thing, that you know, they're calling something simply symphony number four, to use an example in your music, doesn't quite cut it. Whereas what you decided to do instead with all of these references to water, I think really is much more meaningful. The title of the symphony is Pure Cool Water. That's the title. Symphony number four is a subtitle. Yeah. And each movement has its own different state of water. You can imagine I live now in Arizona. We are very sensitive to water shortages out here. My home is in the middle of a rural county in Arizona in what essentially is a desert. I live between two Native American reservations in a city that has grown hugely since we came out here in 2005. We deal with water shortages all the time. And this symphony was written in Arizona. That's a symphony from 2014. I think that means so much more to an audience hearing that than, you know, you and I could wig out, is this a Sonata Allegro? Is this, you know, developmental variation? Is this, you know, an audience is gonna be like, some people are gonna get it, but to really reach everybody, especially that first time around, if there's a backstory to something that you can share, I think it brings people in, and ideally, we we want to bring people in. I would I would hope. I attended the premiere of a composer's third symphony, a composer whom I will not identify, and I was sitting up in the balcony because I came late. I had to grab whatever seat I could get. The piece was done to close the first half, and the audience was applauding, greatly applauding, and. I had thought to myself, as I heard this piece, the slow movement sounded an awful lot like um, outtakes from Cacciatorian's Gyna Ballet, the slow movement from that. But you could only have that reference if you knew the earlier piece. So the gentleman seated in front of me stood up and was applauding loudly. And when intermission came, I asked to speak with him and I asked him, what was it about the piece that grabbed him? And what he did was quote the program notes to me. And that let me appreciate anew how very important people find what we ourselves say, because you have to have, you have, to have a pathway in to listening. We started by talking about the performer's pathway in. Listeners need a pathway in. And part of that goes back to why do I choose programmatic titles? They help to ready you for what the piece might be. Exactly. I want to talk a little bit more about that essay you shared with me. There was a quote I jotted down that I particularly love from the very beginning that I kind of think sets the whole thing up, that you feel your job as a composer is to imagine what might be, which I think well, yeah. really is about being open to a new thing, a new idea and possibility, that it's never about resting on your laurels. It's never about continuing along the same path. It's about being on this path and discovering something when you're on that path. Amen. You said it exactly. Not ever to spin your wheels, not ever to write out of your hip pocket. The psychologist Rollo May has a book called The Courage to Create. He talks about the creative experience as being like Jacob wrestling with the angel in the Old Testament. It is time out of time. The rest of the world falls away. It is only that activity. If each piece isn't a struggle to do, you've got to question how valid it is 
when you've done part of it, you have to question what's going on, being true to yourself, being immersed in the entirety of writing a new piece, of imagining it and then grabbing it and putting it on paper. This does take time out of time. That's one other thing I should say. We've had all kinds of television contests, cooking contests, clothes designing contests. There was even one on cable TV sponsored by a well-known actress that was supposed to be a painter's contest. They'd set them a task to do and a time limit in which to do it. And what happens then is that your old grooves come back, your defaults come in. You do what you know you can do. It's not maybe inspired to the nth degree. And if you can't feel on the far side of the piece when it's done and you're really ready to let it off your desk when you can't make it any better, if you can't feel that that piece is worthy to hold your name, then trash it. I've trashed pieces when I came to the far end. I've done it. Well, that was one of the things that I found so amazing. That you, you know, you mentioned that you you finally got your bearing with writing a string quartet in your sixties, and I thought yes. you know, you'd written a, a string quartet decades earlier, but you took it out of your catalog. I took that out of my catalog. The first piano concerto I took out of my catalog. The world doesn't need those pieces. Listen, any world that values uh, repeated listenings to the music of Didis von Didisdorf, that's fine. That's not my world. Those are older pieces don't cut it as far as I'm concerned. I'm constantly going back and making sure that what I put forward is the best that I can do under the circumstances, period. The last area that I, I want to talk to you a little bit about, even though you know I, we're resisting- I talk about gender? Yeah, there's a reason. Not specifically about you, but I think people need to acknowledge all of the great work that you have done, that you did early on, on behalf of other composers. On behalf of other female composers, you were sort of a catalyst for making people aware of all of this music. And I think that that's something that a lot of people need to be aware of and remember. Thank you for saying that. It just comes from respecting the entire history of music. That's really it. What incensed me, this was in New York in the 70s. I looked around and there were a whole group of women writing music. And I thought to myself, gee, that's wonderful. I didn't know the name of any composer who was female when I was growing up. I played Cecile Chaminade's scarf dance. I thought it was a misprint for Cecil Chaminade. I didn't know. Nobody ever told me that any women wrote music. Did it stop me? No, I knew I was born to write music. Didn't matter to me. I could speak to Schubert and Chopin and Scriabin in my head, that's fine. Berg in my head, that's fine. And they spoke to me through their notes on the page. But I saw there was a whole cohort of women who were writing music. Some of it was good, some of it wasn't. So there are two things that get me. I'm always a huge critic. What I wanted to do was separate the wheat from the chaff, not to talk about a whole group because you find the details get lost. And I heard from a couple of outstanding female composers, outstanding, that what they were not getting in the critical press was attention to the actual stuff of the music. There were all of these other issues that cloud around and you want to get past the whole issue of gender, which doesn't matter. That was one thing. The second thing was I started to learn the history of music that had been written in times past by women. And I started to play this music. And when I got to the music of Elizabeth Claude Jacquet de la Guerre, who is a great composer. When I got to her music and I found that nobody knew this, none of the harpsichordists I knew were playing this stuff. They didn't know her name. They didn't know when she lived. And they didn't know that she was a favorite in the French court of Louis XV and a protege of Madame de Pompadour. They didn't know any of this. When I looked at that, I looked at some of the later work of Fanny Hansel. When I got to play a few things, by Ferenc, a conservative composer, or Lily Boulanger, you know, uh, Rebecca Clark. These people were not in the history books. They were not there 
generations of the present moment weren't knowing about them. So it seemed right to me to weigh in and take time away from my own music to write all those books, to be the editor in chief of all those books for Greenwood Press so that we would fill in the gaps that still existed. Women have such talents, such abilities, such far horizons. The world needs to know about what they have accomplished and appreciated. I got letters from some of the standing composers whom we profiled in the critical appraisals section of the books, the musical woman books, to thank me for finally having been able to engender these really critical articles dealing with the stuff of their music, not who they were as a person, whether they were married or had children, how old they were, that they were women in a man's world, none of that. Deal with their music. That's why I did that. I set my own creative work aside to do this because somebody needed to step up and do it. I was semi-outfitted to be able to. I'm very grateful to the music that these people wrote, that it is now in the world and it is least spoken of once people turn their heads to column B. The thing I don't like is being a column B composer. I don't wanna wait until you get adjective before the word composer, before you think Judith Lang Zaymont. Think of me right up there. I sit at Chopin's, just behind Chopin. I, I can't sit at his shoulder. I sit. I sit back there a ways, but I'm on the stage. <laughs> but of course, with the letter Z, it's the end of the alphabet. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> this concludes our episode of Soundlines. I'm Frank J. O'Terry, and our guest today was composer Judith Lang Zaymont. You're listening to A Strange Magic. String Quartet Number no. 2 by Judith Lang Zaymont, performed by the Amernet String Quartet, available from MSR Classics. New Music Box is brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. This program is funded in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York State Council on the Arts, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and listeners like you. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit newmusicusa.org to explore more stories and voices from our new music community.